Chapter Three, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Three, Part Two. Shall I knock? asked Mrs. Lupin when they reached the chamber door. No, said Mr. Pecksniff. Enter, if you please. They went in on tiptoe, or rather the hostess took that precaution, for Mr. Pecksniff always walked softly. The old gentleman was still asleep, and his young companion still sat reading by the fire. I am afraid, said Mr. Pecksniff, pausing at the door and giving his head a melancholy roll, I am afraid that this looks artful. I am afraid, Mrs. Lupin, do you know, that this looks very artful. As he finished this whisper, he advanced before the hostess, and at the same time the young lady, hearing footsteps, rose. Mr. Pecksniff glanced at the volume she held, and whispered Mrs. Lupin again, if possible, with increased despondency. "'Yes, ma'am,' he said. "'It is a good book. I was fearful of that beforehand. I am apprehensive that this is a very deep thing indeed.' "'What gentleman is this?' inquired the object of his virtuous doubts." "'Hush! Don't trouble yourself, ma'am,' said Mr. Pecksniff, as the landlady was about to answer. "'This young—in spite of himself, he hesitated when person rose to his lips, and substituted another word. "'This young stranger, Mrs. Lupin, will excuse me for replying briefly, that I reside in this village. It may be in an influential manner, however undeserved, and that I have been summoned here by you.' I am here, as I am everywhere, I hope, in sympathy for the sick and sorry. With these impressive words, Mr. Pecksniff passed over to the bedside, where, after patting the counterpane once or twice in a very solemn manner, as if by that means he gained a clear insight into the patient's disorder, he took his seat in a large armchair, and in an attitude of some thoughtfulness and much comfort, waited for his waking. Whatever objection the young lady urged to Mrs. Lupin went no further, for nothing more was said to Mr. Pecksniff, and Mr. Pecksniff said nothing more to anybody else. Full half an hour elapsed before the old man stirred, but at length he turned himself in bed, and, though not yet awake, gave tokens that his sleep was drawing to an end. By little and little he removed the bedclothes from about his head, and turned still more towards the side where Mr. Pecksniff sat. In course of time his eyes opened, and he lay for a few moments, as people newly roused sometimes will, gazing indolently at his visitor without any distinct consciousness of his presence. There was nothing remarkable in these proceedings, except the influence they worked on Mr. Pecksniff, which could hardly have been surpassed by the most marvellous of natural phenomena. Gradually his hands became tightly clasped upon the elbows of the chair, his eyes dilated with surprise, his mouth opened, his hair stood more erect upon his forehead than its custom was, until at length, when the old man rose in bed, and stared at him with scarcely less emotion than he showed himself, the Pecksniff doubts were all resolved, and he exclaimed aloud, "'You are Martin Chuzzlewit!' His consternation of surprise was so genuine that the old man, with all the disposition that he clearly entertained to believe it assumed, was convinced of its reality. "'I am Martin Chuzzlewit,' he said bitterly, "'and Martin Chuzzlewit wishes you had been hanged before you had come here to disturb him in his sleep. 
"'Why, I dreamed of this fellow,' he said, lying down again and turning away his face, before I knew that he was near me. "'My good cousin,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'There! His very first words!' cried the old man, shaking his grey head to and fro upon the pillow and throwing up his hands. "'In his very first words he asserts his relationship. I knew he would. They all do it. Near or distant, blood or water, it's all one. Ugh!' What a calendar of deceit and lying and false witnessing the sound of any word of kindred opens before me. "'Pray do not be hasty, Mr. Chuzzlewit,' said Pecksniff, in a tone that was at once in the sublimest degree compassionate and dispassionate, for he had by this time recovered from his surprise, and was in full possession of his virtuous self. "'You will regret being hasty, I know you will.' "'You know,' said Martin, contemptuously. "'Yes,' retorted Mr. Pecksniff. "'I, I, Mr. Chuzzlewit, and don't imagine that I mean to court or flatter you, for nothing is further from my intention. Neither, sir, need you entertain the least misgiving that I shall repeat that obnoxious word which has given you so much offence already. Why should I? What do I expect or want from you? There is nothing in your possession that I know of, Mr. Chuzzlewit, which is much to be coveted for the happiness it brings you.' "'That's true enough,' muttered the old man. "'Apart from that consideration,' said Mr. Pecksniff, watchful of the effect he made, "'it must be plain to you, I am sure, by this time, "'that if I had wished to insinuate myself into your good opinion, "'I should have been, of all things, careful not to address you as a relative, "'knowing your humour and being quite certain beforehand "'that I could not have a worse letter of recommendation.' "'Martin made not any verbal answer.' but he as clearly implied, though only by a motion of his legs beneath the bedclothes, that there was reason in this, and that he could not dispute it, as if he had said as much in good set terms. "'No,' said Mr. Pecksniff, keeping his hand in his waistcoat as though he were ready, on the shortest notice, to produce his heart for Martin Chuzzlewit's inspection. "'I came here to offer my services to a stranger. I make no offer of them to you, because I know you would distrust me if I did.' "'But lying on that bed, sir, I regard you as a stranger, "'and I have just that amount of interest in you "'which I hope I should feel in any stranger, "'circumstanced as you are. "'Beyond that I am quite as indifferent to you, "'Mr. Chuzzlewit, as you are to me.' "'Having said which, Mr. Pecksniff threw himself back in the easy-chair, "'so radiant with ingenuous honesty "'that Mrs. Lupin almost wondered not to see a stained-glass glory "'such as the saint wore in the church shining about his head.' A long pause succeeded. The old man, with increased restlessness, changed his posture several times. Mrs. Lupin and the young lady gazed in silence at the counterpane. Mr. Pecksniff toyed abstractedly with his eyeglass and kept his eyes shut, that he might ruminate the better. "'Eh?' he said at last, opening them suddenly and looking towards the bed. "'I beg your pardon. I thought you spoke, Mrs. Lupin,' he continued, slowly rising." "'I am not aware that I can be of any service to you here. "'The gentleman is better, and you are as good a nurse as he can have, eh?' "'This last note of interrogation bore reference to another change of posture on the old man's part, "'which brought his face towards Mr. Pecksniff for the first time since he had turned away from him. "'If you desire to speak to me before I go, sir,' continued that gentleman, after another pause, "'you may command my leisure.' "'but I must stipulate, in justice to myself, "'that you do so as to a stranger, strictly as to a stranger.' 
Now, if Mr. Pecksniff knew from anything Martin Chuzzlewit had expressed in gestures that he wanted to speak to him, he could only have found it out on some such principle as prevails in melodramas, and in virtue of which the elderly farmer with the comic son always knows what the dumb girl means when she takes refuge in his garden, and relates her personal memoirs in incomprehensible pantomime. But without stopping to make any inquiry on this point, Martin Chuzzlewit signed to his young companion to withdraw, which she immediately did, along with the landlady, leaving him and Mr. Pecksniff alone together. For some time they looked at each other in silence, or rather the old man looked at Mr. Pecksniff, and Mr. Pecksniff, again closing his eyes on all outward objects, took an inward survey of his own breast. That it amply repaid him for his trouble, and afforded a delicious and enchanting prospect, was clear from the expression of his face. "'You wish me to speak to you as to a total stranger,' said the old man. "'Do you?' Mr. Pecksniff replied, by a shrug of his shoulders and an apparent turning round of his eyes in their sockets before he opened them, that he was still reduced to the necessity of entertaining that desire. "'You shall be gratified,' said Martin. "'Sir, I am a rich man.' "'Not so rich as some suppose, perhaps, but yet wealthy. "'I am not a miser, sir, though even that charge is made against me, as I hear, and currently believed. "'I have no pleasure in hoarding. I have no pleasure in the possession of money. "'The devil that we call by that name can give me nothing but unhappiness.' "'It would be no description of Mr. Pecksniff's gentleness of manner "'to adopt the common parlance and say that he looked at this moment "'as if butter wouldn't melt in his mouth.' He rather looked as if any quantity of butter might have been made out of him, by churning the milk of human kindness as it spouted upwards from his heart. "'For the same reason that I am not a hoarder of money,' said the old man, "'I am not lavish of it. Some people find their gratification in storing it up, and others theirs in parting with it. But I have no gratification connected with the thing. Pain and bitterness are the only goods it ever could procure for me. I hate it. It is a spectre walking before me through the world and making every social pleasure hideous. A thought arose in Pecksniff's mind, which must have instantly mounted to his face, or Martin Chuzzlewit would not have resumed as quickly and as sternly as he did. You would advise me for my peace of mind to get rid of this source of misery, and transfer it to someone who could bear it better. Even you, perhaps, would rid me of a burden under which I suffer so grievously." "'But, kind stranger,' said the old man, whose every feature darkened as he spoke, "'good Christian stranger, that is a main part of my trouble. "'In other hands I have known money do good. "'In other hands I have known it triumphed in and boasted of with reason, "'as the master key to all the brazen gates that close upon the paths "'to worldly honour, fortune, and enjoyment. "'To what man or woman, to what worthy, honest, incorruptible creature, "'shall I confide such a talisman?' either now or when I die. Do you know any such person? Your virtues are, of course, inestimable, but can you tell me of any other living creature who will bear the test of contact with myself? Of contact with yourself, sir? echoed Mr. Pecksniff. I, returned the old man, the test of contact with me, with me. You have heard of him whose misery, the gratification of his own foolish wish, was that he turned everything he touched into gold. The curse of my existence and the realization of my own mad desire is that by the golden standard which I bear about me I am doomed to try the metal of all other men and find it false and hollow. Mr. Pecksniff shook his head and said, 
"'You think so?' "'Oh, yes,' cried the old man. "'I think so. "'And in your telling me I think so, "'I recognize the true unworldly ring of your metal. "'I tell you, man,' he added, with increasing bitterness, "'that I have gone a rich man among people of all grades and kinds, "'relatives, friends, and strangers, "'among people in whom, when I was poor, I had confidence, "'and justly, for they never once deceived me then, "'or to me wronged each other.' "'but I have never found one nature, no, not one, "'in which, being wealthy and alone, "'I was not forced to detect the latent corruption "'that lay hid within it, "'waiting for such as I to bring it forth. "'Treachery, deceit, and low design, "'hatred of competitors, real or fancied, for my favour, "'meanness, falsehood, baseness, and servility, "'or,' and here he looked closely in his cousin's eyes, "'or an assumption of honest independence, "'almost worse than all,' These are the beauties which my wealth has brought to light. Brother against brother, child against parent, friends treading on the faces of friends. This is the social company by whom my way has been attended. There are stories told, they may be true or false, of rich men who in the garb of poverty have found out virtue and rewarded it. They were dolts and idiots for their pains. They should have made the search in their own characters. They should have shown themselves fit objects to be robbed and preyed upon and plotted against and adulated by any knaves who, but for joy, would have spat upon their coffins when they died their dupes. And then their search would have ended as mine has done, and they would be what I am. Mr. Pecksniff, not at all knowing what it might be best to say in the momentary pause which ensued upon these remarks, made an elaborate demonstration of intending to deliver something very oracular indeed, "'trusting to the certainty of the old man interrupting him "'before he should utter a word. "'Nor was he mistaken, "'for Martin Chuzzlewit, having taken breath, went on to say, "'Hear me to an end. "'Judge what profit you are like to gain "'from any repetition of this visit, and leave me. "'I have so corrupted and changed the nature "'of all those who have ever attended on me "'by breeding avaricious plots and hopes within them. "'I have engendered such domestic strife and discord,' by tarrying, even with members of my own family. I have been such a lighted torch in peaceful homes, kindling up all the inflammable gases and vapours in their moral atmosphere, which, but for me, might have proved harmless to the end, that I have, I may say, fled from all who knew me, and taking refuge in secret places have lived, of late, the life of one who is hunted. The young girl whom you just now saw—what? "'Your eye lightens when I talk of her. "'You hate her already, do you?' "'Upon my word, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'laying his hand upon his breast and dropping his eyelids. "'I forgot,' cried the old man, "'looking at him with a keenness which the other seemed to feel, "'although he did not raise his eyes so as to see it. "'I ask your pardon. I forgot you were a stranger. "'For the moment you reminded me of one Pecksniff, a cousin of mine.' "'As I was saying, the young girl whom you just now saw is an orphan-child, "'whom, with one steady purpose, I have bred and educated, "'or, if you prefer the word, adopted. "'For a year or more she has been my constant companion, "'and she is my only one. "'I have taken, as she knows, a solemn oath "'never to leave her sixpence when I die. "'But while I live I make her an annual allowance, "'not extravagant in its amount, and yet not stinted.' "'There is a compact between us that no term of affectionate cajolery "'shall ever be addressed by either to the other, "'but that she shall call me always by my Christian name, "'I her by hers. "'She is bound to me in life by ties of interest, 
and losing by my death, and having no expectation disappointed, will mourn it, perhaps, though for that I care little. This is the only kind of friend I have or will have. Judge from such premises what a profitable hour you have spent in coming here, and leave me to return no more. With these words the old man fell slowly back upon his pillow. Mr. Pecksniff as slowly rose, and with a prefatory hem began as follows. Mr. Chuzzlewit. There, go, interposed the other, enough of this. I am weary of you. I am sorry for that, sir, rejoined Mr. Pecksniff, because I have a duty to discharge, from which, depend upon it, I shall not shrink. No, sir, I shall not shrink. It is a lamentable fact that as Mr. Pecksniff stood erect beside the bed, in all the dignity of goodness, and addressed him thus, the old man cast an angry glance towards the candlestick, as if he were possessed by a strong inclination to launch it at his cousin's head. But he constrained himself, and pointing with his finger to the door, informed him that his road lay there. "'Thank you,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'I am aware of that. I am going. But before I go, I crave your leave to speak. And more than that, Mr. Chuzzlewit, I must and will—yes, indeed, I repeat it—must and will be heard.' I am not surprised, sir, at anything you have told me to-night. It is natural, very natural, and the greater part of it was known to me before. I will not say, continued Mr. Pecksniff, drawing out his pocket-handkerchief, and winking with both eyes at once, as it were, against his will, I will not say that you are mistaken in me. While you are in your present mood, I would not say so for the world. I almost wish, indeed, that I had a different nature, that I might repress even this slight confession of weakness— which I cannot disguise from you, which I feel is humiliating, but which you will have the goodness to excuse. We will say, if you please, added Mr. Pecksniff, with great tenderness of manner, that it arises from a cold in the head, or is attributable to snuff, or smelling salts, or onions, or anything but the real cause. Here he paused for an instant, and concealed his face behind his pocket-handkerchief. Then, smiling faintly, and holding the bed-furniture with one hand, he resumed— but, Mr. Chuzzlewit, while I am forgetful of myself, I owe it to myself and to my character. I, sir, and I have a character which is very dear to me, and will be the best inheritance of my two daughters, to tell you, on behalf of another, that your conduct is wrong, unnatural, indefensible, monstrous. And I tell you, sir, said Mr. Pecksniff, towering on tiptoe among the curtains, as if he were literally rising above all worldly considerations, and were fain to hold on tight, keep himself from darting skyward like a rocket. I tell you without fear or favour that it will not do for you to be unmindful of your grandson, young Martin, who has the strongest natural claim upon you. It will not do, sir, repeated Mr. Pecksniff, shaking his head. You may think it will do, but it won't. You must provide for that young man. You shall provide for him. You will provide for him. I believe, said Mr. Pecksniff, glancing at the pen and ink, that in secret you have already done so. Bless you for doing so. Bless you for doing right, sir. Bless you for hating me. And good night. So saying, Mr. Pecksniff waved his right hand with much solemnity, and once more inserting it in his waistcoat, departed. There was emotion in his manner, but his step was firm. Subject to human weaknesses, he was upheld by conscience. Martin lay for some time, with an expression on his face of silent wonder, not unmixed with rage. At length he muttered in a whisper, 
"'What does this mean? "'Can the false-hearted boy have chosen such a tool "'as yonder fellow who has just gone out? "'Why not? "'He has conspired against me like the rest, "'and they are but birds of one feather. "'A new plot. "'A new plot. "'Oh, self, self, self. "'At every turn, nothing but self.' "'He fell to trifling, as he ceased to speak, "'with the ashes of the burnt paper and the candlestick. "'He did so at first in pure abstraction, "'but they presently became the subject of his thoughts.' "'Another will, made and destroyed,' he said. "'Nothing determined on, nothing done, and I might have died to-night. "'I plainly see to what foul uses all this money will be put at last,' "'he cried, almost writhing in the bed. "'After filling me with cares and miseries all my life, "'it will perpetuate discord and bad passions when I am dead. "'So it always is. "'What lawsuits grow out of the graves of rich men every day,' "'sowing perjury, hatred, and lies among near kindred, "'where there should be nothing but love. "'Heaven help us, we have much to answer for. "'Oh, self, self, self! "'Every man for himself, and no creature for me. "'Universal self! "'Was there nothing of its shadow in these reflections, "'and in the history of Martin Chuzzlewit on his own showing?' End of chapter 3